tonight on A Conversation with Ryan. I am honored to have the dynamic co-author writing duo of Dr. Sharon Kramer and Sarah Shaw. Dr. Sharon Kramer knows firsthand the demands and rewards of working in a professional learning community. She served as Assistant Superintendent for Curriculum and Instruction of Kildare Countryside School District 96 in Illinois. In this position, she ensured all students were prepared to enter Stevenson High School, a model PLC created by the late Dr. Richard DeFore. Sharon is an author of numerous books, including her newest book, Acceleration for All, co-authored with our other guest tonight, Sarah Shaw. Sharon's customized professional learning community coaching academy have empowered school and district leadership teams across the nation. Sarah Shaw has worked with districts throughout the United States and has written several books to aid school teams in their work, including the popular co-authored book with Sharon Kramer, School Improvement for All, which provides resources and rubrics for leaders and collaborative teams to work more effectively and efficiently. She has also co-authored her most recent book with Dr. Kramer, Acceleration for All. Sarah has co-authored a mathematics series of books for school teams. She is a consultant and a coach in many schools, including those targeted in school improvement. She has been a secondary mathematics teacher, a high school instructional coach, and a K-12 mathematics specialist. Sarah serves as a member of the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics editorial panel for the journal Mathematics Teacher. And so without further ado, let's welcome to a conversation with Brian, Dr. Sharon Kramer and Sarah Shaw. Sharon and Sarah, I can't tell you how great it is to see you too. It is great to see you too, Brian. And good to see Sharon, because we're not always in the same space. So it's kind of nice to all be together. Yeah. And so I get started right away with my guests. Um, I want to make sure that my audience gets to know a little bit about you. In the intro, we talked a little bit about you, but I want them to hear from, from your mouth. So, um, you know, talk a little bit about your your personal journeys, your professional stories. Um, who is Sarah Shule? Who is Dr. Sharon Kramer? Sharon, why don't you go first? Okay, well, I have a kind of, I think, a unique um, personal story. I'm the daughter of uh, two immigrants, uh, uh, a Sicilian-Italian woman, mother, and a Greek father. And in my family, you know, it was all about work. And so I'm the first person in my entire family to ever graduate from high school. I didn't say college. I said wow. high school. So I have had a long journey of in education and loved every minute of it. I wanted to be a second grade teacher was when I was in second grade and I stuck to it even when everybody said, well, you should be going to work and why aren't you doing this? And why do you wanna do that? And so I'm kind of stubborn and I loved education and learning so much that I just stuck it out. And you know, a couple of degrees later, maybe like four and other things, um, uh, here I am. Uh, as far as professionally, I have had the honor and privilege of working in um, a variety of roles. In fact, I'm just old enough to have done almost anything in schools at this point in time. And I am work. I have worked in a lot of schools where students were underperforming, and I really that was where my heart really was. Sure. And so when Sarah and I had an opportunity to work together in Oklahoma City, we just decided it was time to write something for school, particularly geared towards schools. It was good for all kids, just sure. like everything is, but particularly geared for those students who need us the most, those that are underperforming. And so that's kind of my journey. In a in in a short nutshell, I'm I'm old enough. We could talk for a while, but I think that's enough. We'll, we'll have enough time to to you know cycle back and, and talk a little bit more about your journey, Sharon. But yeah, that's that's um really impressive. The first in your family to finish high school. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, Sarah. So I don't have that quite in my background, but um, but yes, I went to college. Uh, I was going to be an English major and came out a math major when I saw that you. <laughs> for something in my physics class with the astronomy of stars and 
then worked in um, a small rural school where I was the math department in a grade seven through 12 school in Eastern Oregon, and eventually worked up to some larger comprehensive high schools, then became a high school math instructional coach. And as we started doing some work, our school was not doing very well at the time. Um, they took math off of my title and I started working with all of our subject areas on common assessments and instructional strategies, both inside the classroom and with teams. Sure. And then that led to me being a K-12 math specialist eventually in the district office. And then as I started um, my work with Solution Tree, uh, Sharon and I pretty quickly um, got together, as she mentioned, in Oklahoma City and really started having a passion for these schools where the kids need the most supports. And we, we know that we need them to be educated, to give them options and opportunities when they graduate from high school. And so we just have a heart for all students and we know how much more difficult it is in some of our priority schools. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I have, um, I just admire about you two is that um, although you, you have a heart for, you know, students who um, may have come from challenging backgrounds, you don't use that as an excuse. You're like, get what, you know, no labels. There's the expectant, expectation is the expectation. We just got to get them there. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely true. We often say, rip the labels, teach the students. Yeah. Don't worry about the label. The label doesn't tell you anything about how they learn, what they need, what their next steps are. It's a label. That's it. Yeah. And to be aware of where students are. And the fact that's part of our book right now is how do we get students from where they are to grade level, at least on some essential standards? And what are some strategies for that? Because we're, we're going to be relentless about getting students to grade level and above so they can be successful year after year. Sure. Let's talk a, a little bit about your new book and we'll talk, you know, again about your your journeys as well, because I think it, it cycles back constantly. But when I was reading the book and I, I, I read the epilogue and I'm going to start there because I'm going to start with the last paragraph of your epilogue and I'm going to ask you to talk to it and then we'll get to the rest of the book and I'm kind of going to kind of walk through it. But in the epilogue, in the last um, paragraph, you say, this book is a call to all dreamers who won't accept poverty, language, or class size as reasons for failure. In fact, they won't accept anything other than their student's success. To achieve this, they are willing to change the way they teach, and more importantly, this is important, the way they think and even the way they behave. Whatever it takes to make every student learn and succeed. Dare to dream, then dare to do. You just talked a little bit about that, but speak to that. So you can go first, Sarah, but yeah. I, I'm letting you do this part. Okay. I um really felt like this book was a lot about changing people's thinking because the go-to in education for as long as I've been around, and I'm the oldest person on this, show at this point in time has been to remediate students. In other words, to go backwards, to go forwards. And the more, the greater amount of time we spend going backwards, the less likely we are to move forward, right? Because yeah. you get farther and farther behind. That's really yeah. what happens. Yeah. And so it isn't about the fact that we don't know how to teach students. It isn't for lack of effort. It isn't for lack of, of, support it's our thinking that that's the way that things ought to happen that's traditional that's the parochial view of what we're supposed to be doing sure. and really we believe that in order to move forward we really need to accelerate student learning and that requires a whole new mindset a yeah. whole new way of looking at things and so we felt from the get-go that the strategies in here were really great but that in order to make those strategies work, you first had to believe in your heart of hearts that sure. these students can do it, that we can make it happen, and that there's a pathway to get there through acceleration, not through remediation. So that mind shift is really probably one of the most important parts of the entire book. The strategies are, are wonderful. The things that you you can do are in there. And we hope you grow those strategies sure. because we didn't have a corner on the market of everything you could do to accelerate. But basically, if you don't start with a mindset that says this can happen and we need to move forward, not backwards, it's kind of over. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we also need to do, right, that last sentence that you read about dare, you know, sure. actually do the actions. Um, 
you know, we work, we want to make sure that we're celebrating along the way when we see the wins. So people continue yeah. on that path, but, uh, but yeah, the, the bar is grade level and above. And so it's all about recognizing that and figuring out how to get there using research and using practices in the classroom that are known to, to actually work with kids. What, what you two just talked about ties directly into chapter one in terms of those mindsets. But before we get to each one of those mindsets, um, how, how do you get people who are so entrenched in, in those traditional mindsets to even attempt to even think about this different way? Is, is there a a moral plea, a a something that that you use to tug at their heart to even just open up to to say, okay, I'm gonna at least try this. Yeah. So much of our work is boot, what I call boots on the ground because we sit with teams side by side yeah. and we show them how this can be done because what they really need is the how. And if yes. they see the how and they realize that their students can do this work, if we provide the right scaffolds, if we scaffold up, not excuse the expression, dumb it down, then yeah. we, they begin to see it's doable and possible. And the book outlines exactly how to do that with templates and examples and all kinds of ways that you can make it happen. And the good news is, you know, just like all of our books are built on the foundation of professional learning communities. Yeah. The good news is if you've been functioning as a collaborative team, answering those four critical questions in yeah. a professional learning community, this is no different but it's how you approach that work that's different. So we aren't asking you to learn something all brand new or to change everything you've ever done. We're asking you to think about this in a different way. Yeah. I, would, I would also add to that, that when we go into schools, we find that teachers generally do want their students to do well and they're doing everything they can to make sure students are learning. So that's where the shift in mindset comes from that, it's not that you're doing things wrong, but how do we evolve that thinking? And so we'll bring in examples and we'll talk about how we, how, you know, the why behind every student actually achieving and wouldn't you want that for your own child? And, mm -hmm. and the idea that also this is not on any one person, but we tell them your, your child didn't get that teacher, your child got the team, right? And together you're gonna figure out how to make this happen. And that lessens some of the anxiety sometimes as well. So we have examples from schools we've been at, we can share those with them, we can talk about, and then we can begin the work um, as you read in the book. Yeah. And so in chapter one, the case for acceleration, you have mindset one, schools and districts are learning organizations. Mindset two, all students can learn grade and course level standards. Mindset three, formative assessment is integral to learning. Mindset four, um, schools must systematically intervene to accelerate learning. Mindset five, instructional strategies should create forward moving learning. And mindset six, everyone is a leader of learning. Talk to any and all of those in terms of, again, that mindset, but all of those are shifts for some people or some districts, some schools. You know, they, uh, they are shifts, but I think it fits into the total framework because if you're going to look at things through the lens of acceleration through the lens of getting students to grade level and beyond, sure. then you have to look at your curriculum. You have to look at your assessment. You have to look at your instructional strategies. You have to look at how this work is being led out in, in your school because no one person can do it all. Everybody who's ever been a principal knows that. Yeah. And so basically, um, I think it fits into the framework of that work. Um, and I, I think that the the shifts in each one of those categories really come along it more naturally than we think because yeah. you're you're meeting as a collaborative team you're looking at the curriculum you're answering those questions and you're just asking yourselves how we're going to get them to this standard right. not one that was a grade level below what yeah. is it going to take what conceptual understanding do they need to get up here and so i think it that framework kind of naturally moves through yeah and, and, you know there's a, there's a focus on data too just to see you know what is your current reality and how and, and that provides another reason why we need to have these shifts as sure. we get more students learning yeah. one of the things that um i hear a lot still um in my work is 
you know, when, when people say we, we can't teach all of these standards and get them to master all these standards. And I guess people still are not hearing us or not listening because you focus so much on priority standards. Can you really, really talk to that? Because when I when I say that and, and, and try to work with people and teams, uh, they eventually get it. But then there are still some saying I still need to cover everything because they're feeling so much pressure from the district and the rule followers. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we talk about maybe eight to 10-ish um, priority standards. And I know, you, Brian, you've heard this analogy quite a bit too, but kind of like a fence where you go to build that fence and to make the posts, you spend extra time because you measure the distance between the posts, you dig a hole, you mix concrete, you put the post in, you pour the concrete, you let it set. And so the structure of that fence is the, are the posts. Mm -hmm. And so when we pick those priority standards, we're picking what is the structure? What are, what are some things we can promise we'll get every student to grade level on so that when we send them to the next grade level or course, they can be grade level ready there and we can continue to accelerate learning from there. Because what we know is we can't do it on everything, but we also know that a fence is not just made up of posts. Yeah. So you do need some rails and that's where some of those supporting standards come in. You will touch on some important to know standards because you'll need to have them in order to get to the priority. But those priorities are the focus. They're the focus of any intervention that you might be doing as a team. They are the focus of your instruction. They are the focus of your assessments and you're gathering that information as a team to see how well students are doing. Because again, we are promising at least we will send kids grade level, grade level ready on these. And so what do you say to, and I'm going to push back a little bit, because what do you say to, you know, you know teachers who say the district handed me the priority standards or the district handed me, quote, a guaranteed and viable curriculum, and they say we have to teach this, and it's still too many standards. What do we do with that document? we say, let's look at the list and let's pick our eight to 10. Um, let's pick the ones that are most critical. So we're still, you know, within the list there. And um, when we also do a lot of work on scope and sequence for the year and really thinking through windows of time that you have to teach things. And so we'll, we'll mark out where those um, priority standards actually fall um, in this. And it's possible that some of those other uh, priority standards from the district would weave in as important to know standards, but it's not what we're going to do interventions around first. And it's not going to be the focus of all of our common assessment work in 10 day plans. Yeah. That hey. actually is one of the shifts that we talk about a lot when you go to acceleration is that shift from teaching the curriculum to teaching the student. Yeah. That's a huge shift. And yeah. so you make decisions as teachers. Otherwise, we could hand anybody that curriculum pacing guide and say, do this for eight to 10 days, move on to this for the next right. five. But you're making decisions because you're the person that knows the students the best. And, you know, I kind of always say you have to teach the students that show up, not the one the pacing guide was written for. Yeah. Because sometimes they're not the same. Yeah. In fact, most of the time they aren't. Well, I think also, and you two know this better than I, because you're the experts, but also when, when we have teams, you know, choosing those standards together, there's deep understanding of those standards. So there's no um, educational lottery when they go back to their individual classrooms, there's consistency in the way they understand those standards and the way they assess those standards. Mm-hmm. And we want to look at them vertically too, right? Just yep. to make sure that the course or grade level above you agrees. Yep. Yes, please send yep. us kids that know these to grade level. You yep. know, we talk about in the book too, the need to teach um, for conceptual understanding that that is what builds retention and helps students really be able to make connections and put things together. And John Hattie talks about prior knowledge as um, as being rather high in terms of impact and student learning. And so if you're going to do all of that, right, it takes time. And that is where we need to prioritize some of the standards to do it well so that kids can grow from year to year. One of the things I was excited to read in your book um, under in chapter two, culture that accelerates learning. And we've seen, you know, the the, the teacher part and the their principal part. But the the piece that was really exciting, because we really spent a lot of time in my former school, Mason Crest, doing this is really helping parents and community members understand this process. Talk a little bit about that. So one of the things in that chapter we talk a lot about is that in schools, we wonder like what our mission or purpose is. And I don't know why we wonder about that because 
we're a learning organization. Yeah. And I don't know if learning isn't what we're about, then I don't know what are we about, okay? And so we talk a lot about how every school's mission is really learning is required. And then if that's the mission, learning is required. It's not optional, not if you feel like it today, not if it's going to happen today, maybe next week, I don't know. But basically, it's required. And if you believe that's your true mission, and it should be every school's mission, in my view, if you believe that's your true mission, then what does that mean if you're a student? What does that mean for parents? What does it mean for teachers? What does it mean for the principal or leadership team around that piece of it? And what does it mean for parents? And beyond that, what does it mean for community members? Because it takes all of us to educate our children. And so we talk a little bit about what role everybody plays in that and how we have not necessarily always spent enough time explaining that mission to people beyond our school and gathering their input and and making them part of the process. And also, to be fair, holding their feet to the fire. If learning is required, I mean, you say it to students, you know, learning is required at our school and you didn't do your assignment. So maybe today, instead of going to lunch with your friends, you finish this because at our school, learning is required. I mean, every parent that has to bring their child to school late for whatever the reason, you have a little conversation, not saying you're late. You say, you know, at our school, learning is required. And if your child is late, they miss the, the launch lesson, the instructions, the morning it, 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 that sets the whole tone for the day. Can you just come a little earlier? I know it's hard to get to school, but can you come earlier? Because at our school, learning is required. It becomes the mantra for everybody. And I think that that's the only way we're going to make sure all of our students are well-educated to grade level and beyond. Well, I think we need to make sure too that the messaging we're sending from a school isn't always negative. Are the phone calls home only when students are in trouble or not doing well? Like how do we spin that and start to recognize that learning is required and students are doing it and celebrate it in the community so they can really see the school as a beacon of um, getting their students educated for those options and opportunities. What it also, oh, go ahead, Sharon, I'm sorry. No, I just said it's really, really, really true. I think we have done things like you're tardy, you're late, you're absent. Well, tell the story, friends. Why is that important? There's a lesson in that. I mean, I think we miss that sometimes. And I think one of the things when you start to involve the community and parents, um, you actually help them, again, if we're a learning organization, you help them understand the why of why we're doing things. You know, why are we not giving zeros anymore? Why are we giving extra, you know, attempts on on assessments? Because like that's not the real world. And so we have to help them understand this is the real world that we're living in now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. All right, and so chapter three, priority standards, you talked a little bit about that. Um, uh, Sarah, talk about chapter four and, and Sharon about you know this, this you know balanced assessment system and what that should look like because assessment for a, a lot of parents, a lot of teachers, a lot of students, they freak out, they're like a test. And we're not talking about that so much. We're talking more about this idea of giving you know multiple um, you know checks every day to just see if they're getting what we're intending on them to get. Yeah, you know, it's, um, we need to stop thinking of assessment always as an event and as part of a process, but more importantly, help students see assessment as part of their learning story and not their judge measure record story. So we have to, as teachers, ask ourselves, what are we trying to learn about student thinking because of these assessments? And we have to also think about what do we want students to learn about their thinking because we give this. And so it becomes very important that if you are giving a common assessment, whether it's small, mid-unit, like an exit ticket or something, or a checklist, or whether it's a larger end-of-unit assessment, how are we using learning targets all the way through so students know what they're learning and they can take the information from the assessment and see what they've learned. In fact, um, some of the elementary schools that we're in, and I know my own district, we would call it a show you what you know day. Hey, tomorrow's yep. a show you what you know day. Yeah, like, I don't freak out. You're just going to see what you've learned and then we're going to go from there. Um, but when you talk about a balanced assist- assessment system where the learning really happens is in the classroom where yeah. you have the formative assessment and you're listening to students and observing them working and giving them that instantaneous feedback right away. And so 
as teachers and teams, we build those assessments to get really clear about where we're headed. And then that's going to frame stronger instruction and allow us to give better feedback to students. But it's not one and done. You didn't get it now, okay. Guess what? The consequence is you get to learn it because as Sharon said, learning is required here. So we're gonna make sure you learn it and you're gonna get another opportunity to show us that you have it. You know, Rick DeFore talked about, um, the late Rick DeFore, and we, he was all of our heroes. Um, he talked about the PLC at work process and he talked about, you know, these common formative assessments um, being the linchpin of that that process because he said it's not only, you know, affects student learning, but it really affects the adult <coughs> learning collectively. He said that's the best professional learning that can happen when we use those assessments to actually look at, you know, you know, Sarah, the students that you were working with got 95% on this skill. Sharon, the students that you were working with got 95%. Brian, the students that you were working with got 50%. And it's not a gotcha thing. It's not about, you know, ranking teachers. It's not about sorting teachers. It's not about evaluating teachers. It's about looking at effective practice so I can share, you can share with each other and put more tools in our toolkits. You know, John Yost, one of our colleagues says, um, data is for learning, not for judging. And so I think it's really important that we think about get, gathering this data for learning, both about our instructional practices and the students. But it's also really, really important that we see these assessments as a way to gather student work so that we can come together as a team and learn from the student work, those instructional practices that are working or not working or the common misconceptions that kids might be having. And is that on us? Is that on one of us? You know, where does that stem from and what do we need to do because of it? So the power in it is exactly the learning, both when you create it, but also on the back end when you're calibrating yourselves and analyzing that work. I think in, in acceleration too, if you wanna accelerate, you really have to make sure that you have way more checks, like you called them, Brian, for right. understanding. And that's a daily event. I usually right. call it a daily rally check-in because right. if you taught something new today, you need to know as a teacher and so do the students need to know, did right. I learn it? And yeah. do I need, am I gonna be able to use what I learned today, tomorrow and the next day and the day after that? And so it really does help you accelerate. It also helps you not spend time on things you don't need to spend time on. Sure. If you're making a guess, we're spending too much time on something and that bogs down the system when you're really trying to accelerate too. So it becomes more frequent, I think, if anything, and yeah. that we look at data more often. Sure. We have to think about the time that the fact that every time you give an assessment, those are instructional minutes. Yeah. And so if we're trying to accelerate learning, we need time for that. So if we're giving an assessment, how are we utilizing that again for learning, not judge measure recording? And how are kids getting that information and learning from it? And that really becomes critical when you're accelerating learning. And how do we make it motivational? Like, like I heard you say, Sharon, on one of the videos I was watching, you know, recently about you gave the analogy of like the uh, the video games. Um, and when kids play video games, they're constantly wanting to, you know, get better because they're, and they're getting feedback constantly. I love that analogy. I mean, I watch that video all the time. Yeah, I think that the one thing that we leave out of assessment often is the students, yeah. which is the sad piece. It's a missing piece. Yeah. And then we wonder why they're not motivated when it comes to take that big state test that right. I call the one that drops from the heavens. And basically, that's what the students think, that basically it's because we haven't engaged them all the way along. So, you know, we believe in tracking your data and understanding your errors and analyzing your mistakes and looking at your own work and just and determining where you are. I mean, all those things engage students and they also build confidence and efficacy, which is what you want, because if you want them to, to dig into an assessment when it's really hard or they don't understand it or they can't read the thing, the paragraph in front of them, well, yeah. they have to feel pretty good about themselves to keep on going, don't they? Yeah. And so yeah. if you engage them all the way along in that, like video games do, Mm -hmm. in a lot of respects, they're going to stick with it because they know sooner or later they're going to figure it out yeah. or, rather than give up and say, I can't do this right. right at the start. So that's part of the whole process is we believe that the missing link is students and we need to be more aggressive and intentional about how we engage them in the process. You know, students will say, I'm bad at math or I'm bad, I'm a bad writer or I'm bad scientist, right? That fixed mindset. Right. And if they don't have assessments that are tied to the same targets, those ascent, those priority standards we've been talking about, those same targets they've been learning, then 
then all they think is I got, uh, I, you know, I failed my chapter two test, but I don't right. even know where to start. But if we have the targets, you inspire them because they can see, oh, I can add fractions with like denominators. I'm yeah. just need to work on adding fractions with unlike denominators. Sure. And that feels doable, right? So how do we bring students in that confidence, that self-efficacy? Um, it's definitely going to be involved, helping students see the link between their instruction and assessment and continued learning. Well, again, it helps them see that they're making progress. They could have like four targets within the standard and they mastered a couple and they're like, oh, I can do this, right? Yes. yes. The other thing it does is it honors learning. If, if we're a learning organization, even if you make a mistake, it doesn't mean you got it all wrong. So exactly. how can we find those things that honor learning, even when it wasn't all, when it wasn't right, when it, you didn't get the right answer? What do you know about this that we can honor learning? Because if learning is required, we better make a big deal about all the learning that's happening because we're honoring that. And I, I believe that we miss that sometimes. We are so, we're excited as teachers, we're excited as people that work with students when they do learn but then we move on to the next thing yeah. honor the learning make yeah. sure they understand they weren't all wrong yeah and i heard sarah say something earlier about celebration and, and it's in your in your book as well you know you how do you build celebration into, <laughs> into the culture of your school and they don't have to be major things i mean we we value what we celebrate and we celebrate what we value right and so if we're valuing and celebrating learning then that's going to be the focus Yep. And we see it on the walls of the school yeah. and we see it when kids grow, we celebrate. And when they reach the proficiency level or higher on a priority standard, we celebrate. Yeah, we really want to. And, and when a team, by the way, um, is making gains with students, we celebrate the team, not just yeah. one teacher, but how is the whole team doing? Yeah. Yeah. In chapter five, and we kind of weaved in and out of this, but in terms of this idea of daily grade level instruction that accelerates learning, can you speak to that? And again, we've talked about, you know, identifying priority standards and making sure that kids have access to those. But how do we make sure that kids are not getting pulled and, and that we have a system in place where everybody knows that these are things that are so important that kids can't miss these? So the instructional strategies were um, really based on those, I believe, the seven things that are, I mean, we have other things in there too, but the seven sure. things both Hattie and Dr. Marzano really push and agree on. Um, I I do use a lot of Hattie, John Hattie's work, yeah. and I do use a lot of unpacking of those things that he says are most important. And right. I think when the instructional chapter was written, it was based on what are those instructional strategies that yeah. really move the learning forward. And I, I am um, excited about that because I think we are getting a lot of schools and districts with new teachers, brand new teachers and yeah. people who maybe have as much experience. And I think that those instructional strategies are the only thing that's gonna support us all, sure. frankly. In so the and on the systems piece, you do have to have time in order to teach, right? And use yeah. these strategies. So if we've identified those priority standards, we know when those are being, <laughs> then that's a no pull time um, of students for different things. We start, we or in schools, we work on minimizing the number of times that the speaker is going off in the classroom, which every yeah. time that happens, students, you know, thinking stops. Um, and so it becomes also important to share those priority standards with anybody that might be supporting student learning in that grade level or course. So everybody knows what's most important sure. um, and that we can have conversations around if kids aren't here yet, what are some of our strategies to get them where they need to be? But we know conceptual understanding is in there. Spiral reviewing and um, continuing to have students bring that knowledge back in, which is also connections is really sure. important. Um, I know I'm in a school right now and they've been teaching four days and giving a common formative assessment. And then they teach again and give a common formative assessment and they're never putting it all together. Yeah. And we were talking about how the kids are not retaining information because we are training them as teachers to remember the information for five days yeah. and then chuck it because there's five more coming. And so it's really about helping people see how everything is connected and then giving the teams, as you said, time in the master schedule to actually teach it. Yeah. And so we have, you know, identified priority standards, we've created an assessment system, you know, we're, we're you know, using, you know, strategies that we, we think are going to give us the biggest impact on learning. 
and and then after that assessment's you know given, then we have to do something like you know in terms of our intervention system that accelerates learning, and that's chapter six for you all. And some of the strategies you have is again repurpose time in the master schedule for interventions, respond as a team to student learning data, um, focus on student growth, utilize blended learning, create small groups, develop and use peer tutors, and so on and so on. And so speak a little bit to that because. We've been given giving um, assessments for since the you know beginning of time, right? And so it's the next step that's really important. Yeah, it's not just about the piece of paper, right? It's what you do with the information that comes back. So yeah. this is where it gets tricky in the schools that Sharon and I are working in, where um, if we are in a school where there are a significant number of students well below grade level, that additional time and support, which many people might consider tier two time, becomes a tier three experience. And we try to look at sharing kids to get reading foundational skills in place sure. or numeracy skills in place. And yeah. that's when we might do some more small group work or build in a flex day when we're planning our unit so that during core instruction, we can respond right away to the learning that we're seeing or not seeing from common formative assessments. Yeah. Outside of that, of course, you have your additional time and support, ideally for tier two. And, um, and you would have fewer students who might need that tier three support, sure. but we do have to allocate time, whether it is an entire team having the same additional time and support, yeah. or whether it's across the whole campus. Yeah. And then we talk in here a little bit about the vitamin approach, and I'll let Sharon take that one on. Yeah, that's really what Sarah's talking about, sort of um, indirectly, but um, the vitamin approach really is it, when you have more than 50% of your students who can't read the text right. at any grade level, they're never going to be successful. It isn't that they don't understand cause and effect. You've been teaching that since probably kindergarten. Right. It's that they can't read the text to pick right. out the cause and effect. And so we were trying to solve the wrong problem by focusing merely on the standards over and over and over again. Right. It, it wasn't the standard they didn't understand. If you read it to them, they could get it. It was really that they couldn't read the text. So in a school where you see large numbers of kids that would normally qualify for what we would call a tier three um, uh, uh, support, Right. We just we do what we call the vitamin, which is we give everybody a shot or a vitamin every day in reading to make sure that they're learning to read every day. Yeah, because that's the only way we're going to catch them up. We can't yeah. solve the problem by merely focusing on what standards they didn't learn. Right. Those come pretty easily. And especially in in reading, because those standards spiral they spiral. They, yeah. Keep yeah. going all the time. So it isn't a standards problem. It's a it's a comprehension reading problem. And, and so that's kind of what where the vitamin approach came from. It came from the fact that our, when, when you're growing, when you have growing kids at home, you give them vitamins because you want them to grow big and strong. We want to give everybody a vitamin, particularly in literacy. Sometimes it's literacy and numeracy. And yeah. we want to give them that vitamin so that they'll be strong all along. And ultimately, it's about what are those times in the day that you can carve out so that, again, we can share kids. There's more than one teacher. We can focus in on a targeted um, skill, reading foundational skill or intervention. Um, and even beyond, is this tier one, tier two, tier three? Just what do the kids need, right? We right, started exactly. with that question. So I, I don't care what you call it, but where in the day do you have time to respond to student learning so we can accelerate it and extend learning for students who have been learning the standards? And I think one of the things that we have to really help people understand is that if I'm a fifth grader and I can't read the text, but I can understand inferencing, you know, I have a fifth grade brain. I don't have a second grade brain, right? Mm -hmm. So I can understand, like you were saying, Sharon, I just can't, yeah, I can't read the text. Like if somebody read it to me, I could actually, it's fine. And, and I'm, I'm passionate about that because that was me. You know, I was a kid who they wanted to retain early on, but I had a dad who was a reading teacher, so I had an interventionist at home. I was very lucky, and that's where my passion comes from, because every kid does not have an interventionist at home. No, no, and I think that's, you know, in my early days of doing this work, I have to be perfectly on, upfront and honest, and I always use myself as an example. I was beating every, to death all those standards. And then I realized, Sharon, you're solving the wrong problem. Yeah. Solving the wrong problem. The problem is they can't read it. 
and you have to go back to those foundational reading skills. And even at the upper grades, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth, they're reading, they're so far below, they can't read anything that that they need to be reading at their grade level or on yeah. any assessment you give them. And so how do we bring those foundational reading skills to them? Well, you know, multisyllabic words, looking at ways to solve that whole thing are really is is really important. And so once I got to the point where I realized I was solving the wrong problem, then it came to me that everybody needed a vitamin. But and you had I the courage to do that, Sharon. You had the Pardon? courage that you had the courage to look in the mirror and say, I gotta do something different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was so, I mean, I was so, um, I don't want to say it wasn't depressed, but I was so like, why can't I make this happen? That kind of thing. I was like frustrated sure. there. I'm doing the best I can. They're listening to me. They're with me. Their kids love to do this, but it isn't working. Okay. Yeah. So that was when, you know, I kind of finally decided I was trying to solve the wrong problem. And I think the other thing is, as far as time is concerned, having a three-tier system, we all know is what people need. When I go into schools, most of them don't have all three tiers. No matter how hard they try, they don't have all three tiers. So we show them how to use the time you put in your schedule for tier three every single day and how to interrupt that schedule when you want to do tier two because you just gave a common assessment and you sure. want to respond to it. So you might stop doing tier three for three days and then you get right back into it and do that all year long. We're getting some success with that. And I would say overall, Brian, um, you know, going back to what I said earlier about the focus being on conceptual understanding, and it's what you're talking about in reading, you can teach main idea or theme or even citing evidence if you can't read. But I don't want to lose fact, the sight of, again, with my math background, that the same thing is true in math. You don't have to know your basic facts to learn um, higher level math. If Even if um, you are in fourth grade and you're multiplying three times 42, you can break out the base 10 blocks and you can make three groups of 42 and then total how many you have and get the idea of multiplication as groups of yeah. along the way while your intervention is still working on some strategies for knowing your basic facts. So that's where it's also going to take a team. And again, one of the biggest things in acceleration is coming up with those strategies that you can teach grade level because sure. you must teach grade level every single day. And then you can work on <coughs> to get there. Yeah. So I think my friend Sarah wrote a book and the one thing I love about this book, you know, I'm the English person, I'm the reading person on, the, on, the call, on this um, show, but Sarah is a math person. But I remember my favorite book Sarah wrote was the one where she connected the strategies and the things that you use in ELA to math. It made so much sense to me yeah. finally. I was so excited about it. So if you want to know how to make that work with conceptual understanding, I know my friend Sarah has a book out like that. It's called Engage in the Mathematical Practices. Um, yes. so it has different chapters. It's like 40 strategies that link literacy. So if you're not doing Common Core, it still applies. <laughs> it looks like this. And yeah. I was so excited to read it. I finally understood how to help teachers understand what they were trying to do in mathematics when I read that book. So right. I'm I'm giving it a plug because it's good. That's awesome. And Sarah, as you talked about that, it just, you know, brought me back to my time at Mason Crest with my two amazing math people who did the same thing that you did, you know, Jen Dinehart and Tracy Hewlin. Um and and they're just amazing. I know you, you know, you know, Jen and you're writing some things with Jen. So what you just talked about is exactly what um, we were doing at Mason Crest. And again, it wasn't because of me, it's because we had other people who were experts who knew how to do that. Um, and that just kind of leads us into chapter seven, you know, those leadership practices that accelerate learning. One, you got to start with the guiding coalition, as you all talked about, this <coughs> people who are going to make sure that they're the engine that drives the the the, uh, the ship. And they're not the, the, the top-down engine. They're going to just help, again, make sure that this is a learning organization and that we're all learning together. Um, you talk about utilizing instructional coaches, build a system of instructional support and engage the community and stakeholders um, in terms of those leadership practices. So one of them, Brian, really quick is what you were just talking about. And yes, Jen is amazing. And so is Jackie Heller. I think she came from yes, your school Jackie. as well. So hopefully yes. their ears are burning. Yes. Um, we always are very honored and privileged when we get to work together. We learn from one another along the way. But for schools that have the opportunity to have instructional coaches, um, that can be a very large instructional support for teachers as they're trying to figure out concepts and the meaning of standards along the way. But Sharon, I'll let you take on um, the others. 
the thing that I think is most important in that chapter really is there's lots of structures of how the coaches, instructional coaches work best, all that other, all those nuts and bolts things that you need to have happen are in the chapter. But one of the things that I think we have to seriously look at in education overall is the idea, this whole idea that we've got to move away from a system that evaluates and supervises teachers to one that supports them. We wonder why teachers leave the profession. It's not because they don't like children anymore or they don't think it's the most fun job in the world. It's really because they want to be terribly successful at everything we do. We all want to be successful, but without the right supports, you can't do that. And so the system of support in this chapter is really all about how do we recruit, retain, keep teachers and support teachers whose maybe first role wasn't a teacher. We have a lot of emergency certified teachers out there in the world. We have people coming to school. And by the way, some of them are doing a great, a super job, but they need lots and lots of support. And so moving away from this whole idea that it's our job to find the best fourth grade teacher or the best third grade teacher, that's not what we should do anymore. It's not about that. It's about what are the supports you have in your school to make sure that all of them are learning and growing because that's what keeps people in the profession. That's how we recruit and retain them. And so the chapter has a whole system of support, much like we give support to students, um, but it has a whole whole system in there about what we can do to support teachers. Yeah, I love that. You know, in, in Anthony Muhammad and Luis Cruz's um, book, Time for Change, I mean, they talk about, and you all talked about this earlier, you know, when when people know how, they'll be on board. They won't resist, you know, and they talk about this. People resist because they don't know how. And that's a that's a logical reason to resist. If I don't know how and you're asking me to do something, I don't want to be put myself out there and be and look like I'm, you know, incompetent. And so I think, you know, the the tools that you all give and again, this book was so great, you know, school improvement for all, all the tools that you all gave in, in there really um address the how. But this book is, you know, that on steroids. I mean, I think you all have just hit a home run with this book. And I just really think it's going to be a great book for for every single school, team, individual, district, you know, across the land. We're very excited. Thank you so much. We we are very excited. I This was sort of the passion I had rolling around in my head for a long time. And then Sarah, of course, I don't know, Sarah always has this passion <laughs> I don't you know how she are machines. Yeah, she, she's you two like, are like writing machines. I mean, I looked at all the books that you've written. It's <laughs> 20 some or 30 books total that you've written. It's just amazing. And each one is a is a passion project. Yes. yes. We yes. want every student to learn. So we just brainstorm and try things out in our schools and come back and again, just then share our ideas so that more people can figure out how to get every student to grade level and above. Well, you two are, the, are like the ultimate role models in when we go to chapter eight, your your last chapter, the ultimate role models in terms of continuous improvement, continuous learning, making sure that you get better and better. And so that idea of continuous improvement and continuous learning, that is part of the PLC at work journey, the process. And so your chapter eight really kind of, you know, dovetails into, you know, we have to continually improve and reflect in order for us to reach every child, right? Mm-hmm. For sure. I always say that um, in professional learning communities, it's as much about our learning as it is about student learning. Yep. And and I think sometimes when I say that, people are a little surprised because, you know, you're supposed to, we're teachers, we we got into this, we're the experts, we're the person standing in front of the class. But no, this is this work is as much about us learning as it is about a, the, the student learning. So mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Yep. And teachers knowing which essential or priority standards kids did learn, which priority standards they still need to learn and sharing that for next year so that next year has a leg up on putting standards in the right spot. Yeah. Well, this has been great, you two. I really appreciate it. I just want to tell one or two quick stories before we end. And so Sharon, one story about you is, I don't know if you remember this, but you and I were at an institute and it was in Minneapolis. And we were walking around one evening with a couple other people and we were trying to find a place to eat. And we sat down and I think it's the first time I really had a chance to chat with you and, and meet with you. And this was maybe eight or nine years ago. 
10 years ago, maybe. Um, but we said, yeah, it's probably been longer than that. But we sat down and you just engaged the heck out of me that night. I was just a fan. After that night, I was just like the biggest Sharon Kramer fan ever. Um, oh. It was a lovely evening. I just always remember that. Mm -hmm. oh, that's so kind of you. I remember you sat next to me and I wondered, yes. I don't know if he drew the the short straw. <laughs> <laughs> He's sitting next to me, and you were so kind. And oh, so it was great. Oh, Sharon's a lot of fun. You always learn when you have conversations. Yeah, yeah. And, and Sarah, you know, we kind of met when we started the RTI at Work Institutes together, and that was a blast. But I think, you know, the thing that I remember about you is, remember we were in Arkansas, and it was when Rick had just found out that he um, had cancer, but he we were at an institute, and we did that skit on stage. Do you remember yes. that, that rap? I and you do. were a great sport. You we were doing the beat to it. I did like, not want to do it. Yeah, I was pulling <laughs> everybody was... in. I'm like, you got to do this with me. And and Sarah's yes. like, okay, and and she did it. And so I think the 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 respect that I have for for you two as as educators, but as people, is just off the charts. You know, at the end of each one of my podcasts, um, I use this old African proverb that I used when my my dad passed away at his funeral a couple of years ago. And the proverb go proverb goes, "As I go, I am wearing you." And Sarah and Sharon, all that I've learned from you, just the influence that you have had on me, um, and and again, I've had a lot of people who have poured into me. And when you see Brian Butler, you don't see Brian Butler, you see all the people who have helped him along the way, who he is wearing, who have influenced him. And so, you know, again, today, I have always, since I've met you, worn Sarah and Sharon. So thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. We learn from you too, <laughs> or I have anyway, all the time. Yes, yes. For sure. Thank you so much. Yeah, and so good luck with the book. And we will talk very soon. Thank you so much for coming on A Conversation with Brian. And I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Subscribe to A Conversation with Brian on Spotify.